So today, we're going to look at uh, a pretty famous conversation in the scripture, but one that I did not realize that, that this was true of until I studied it this week. This is the longest, the largest conversation that Jesus has with anybody in all of recorded scripture. And it's not with who you would think, and it's not about what you would think. So, let me read it to you, and we're going to get started. It's in John chapter 4. Jesus learned that the Pharisees, the, the religious elite of the day, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing them, but his disciples were doing it. But, you know, and so the religious elite started to not like this. It was causing a stir. Jesus knew there was probably going to be some trouble if he stayed in town. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. And so the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Uh, I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob, who has given us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Well, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Why, well, I, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. But the fact is that you, you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Yeah, our ancestors, they worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, <laughs> the time's coming when you're going to worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. Uh, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks, because God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And so they came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, 
they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's make this real. I just had the weirdest experience. I don't really even know what happened. I was, uh, I was just coming out of Trader Joe's with my water, and I lost my grip. You know how heavy these suckers can be. And I dropped the freaking case on the sidewalk outside the store. A bunch of the 16 ounces fell out and started rolling. So I'm chasing them all over the parking lot, and this guy comes up and starts helping me. So I said thank you, and he, uh, he just said no problem. But then he asked if he could have one of the bottles to drink out of. And I took a quick look at the guy, and he didn't look rich, but he didn't look poor either, definitely not really poor. So I started telling him, buzz off and buy your own. But, um, something about this guy made me want to give him one. So I did. And he opened it up right in front of me and started drinking it. So, so I said, hey, man, you must be uh, real thirsty. And he said, you must be too. And then he said the craziest thing I ever heard. He said, I have water too, only if you drink my water, you'll never be thirsty again. So I laughed and said, well, then maybe you should stop creeping up on strange women and drink some of that yourself. And then, hold on, I got to get this part perfect. He said, my water isn't for the body, it's for the soul. <laughs> well, at that point, I labeled him a nutcase, although he definitely didn't look like one. So I said, look, dude, you seem respectable and all. You've uh, got a nice haircut, and your clothes are clean, and you don't have anything pierced. And that was when he stopped. He said, oh, yes, I do, and he held out his hands. And there were two holes, one in the middle of each hand. I'd never seen anything like it before. But then he... Uh, he took those two holy hands and placed one on each side of my face and tilted my head up so I had to look him right in the eye. I mean, the minute he touched me, I felt like I didn't want to run away anymore. And then he called me by my name. And he said, oh, Annie, you know how much I love you. Look at me. 
Look at the way I am. Nobody could love me, especially not you. And then he put his arm around me. And he said, don't worry. I'll take care of all that. And I, uh, I didn't know what else to say. So I just said, okay. And then he suddenly had the biggest, hugest smile. All I said was okay. And he looked at me like I had given him the world. I don't think I'd ever seen anybody so happy in my life. And I made him feel that way. I had never made anyone feel good about anything before, ever. like no kiss I had ever had in my life. It made me feel warm and, uh, and safe and uh, clean. And then he was gone. I don't know where he went to, but uh, I can still feel that kiss on my forehead. And I could still feel that warmth all around me. It was like he was still there. It was like he would always be there. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but uh, it'll be all right. I don't know. I guess I just thought maybe something like that had happened to you. I guess I thought something like that may have happened to you. I hope so. This is the reason I think the scriptures keep, keep this as uh, that God orchestrated it so that it is the longest recorded thing, the longest recorded conversation of Jesus. It's because it contains with it the whole gospel. It's not theological words. It's not like studying the book of Romans or Hebrews where we can kind of get it and study and get our theology straight. In fact, it contains almost no words of teaching. But what it does do is it takes the entire gospel written over thousands of years and it places it in one very controversial story. If you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand God, 
If you want to understand who Jesus is and who you and I are, if you want to understand the story, his story, your story, study this story. This is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it, it was likely another one of those hot Middle Eastern days, humid, dusty, gritty. And Jesus and his band of followers have been walking around for quite some time. So while he sent them off to get some food to eat, it was around midday, around noon in Samaria. What came about was a not-so-chance encounter at a somewhat unremarkable watering hole because, I mean, they were just two strangers. One was a man. The other was a woman. We know one's name. We know the name of one of uh, the people that were there. It is the name that the Bible says, at its mere mention, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess its lordship. I mean, that's a name. That's quite a name. The woman, well, she's not even given a name. No name mentioned. Nameless. I mean, it's like she could have been anyone. She could be anyone. She could be me. She could be you. And so on that hot day as the sun was beating down on this, this man's head, as the sweat poured off of his brow, as he walked along the dusty road, probably mid to late July when temperatures can top out there in about 105 degrees, to make matters worse, he was traveling for hours, likely been traveling since sunrise with his friends, and the sun was now directly overhead. He'd probably have been hurried along by his followers because they didn't want to be in that town they didn't want to be in Samaria any longer than they, they needed be. And uh, this man comes to a, a well with a rock ledge built around it. And he sits down on the lip and he thought to himself, man, if I could only have a drink of water. And at precisely that moment, this woman comes along. It wasn't the normal time for a woman to come, to long, for a woman to come along. It was unusual for her to come especially by herself, but this was an unusual woman. The Bible says she came from a, a tiny village called Sakar. Sakar was her hometown. You see, Sakar had a well, but she had traveled in the heat at that hour to this one, about a half a mile away from her house, by herself, outside of her village, near the point of a, a major intersection. And, and so now, enter the story with me. Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gathering and baptizing more than the disciples of John, although in fact it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. I mean, he had to. It's a really interesting detail. I mean, see, he had to go through Samaria. Interesting detail, only because it's not really true. Jesus did not need to go through Samaria. In fact, Jesus, if he was bound by any religious duty or anyone's religious expectations of the day, Jesus would have done anything but go through Samaria. I mean, good people, holy people, people that love God, people that are moral, righteous people, you don't go through Samaria. Or do they? See, in Jesus' day, there, 
there were three regions stacked one on top of the other. There was Galilee in the north, there was Samaria in the middle, and there was Judea in the south. So the easiest, the quickest way to get from, from uh, Judea up to Galilee was a straight shot right through Samaria. But in Jesus' day, pious Jews, especially rabbis, who cared anything about reputation or their name, you don't go through Samaria. They actually would travel a very well-worn out path by the Jews. They would go east. They would cross the Jordan River. They'd enter the region of Perea. Then they'd go north and they'd recross the Jordan again. And then they'd go into Galilee. It was out of the way, but it meant they didn't have to go through Samaria because holy people don't go through Samaria. Or do they? Jews despise Samaritans. Even though they believed in the same God, even though they descended from the same people, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as a social and religious half-breeds. They, they were the product of Gentile and Jewish intermarrying. They were considered dogs. To righteous Jews, all they could see was that the Samaritans disregarded most of the books of the Old Testament, and they just kind of did their own religious thing. They built their own temples. Does this sound familiar about sometimes the way we can feel about other people? They built their own temples. They built their own mountain where they worshipped they had all kinds of idol worship and false religions crept into their lives. So the Jews regarded Samaritans as apostate at best and demon-possessed at worst. There is no way holy people set foot in Samaria. Or do they? Listen to the words of Scripture. It says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. This is a God who goes to Samaria's. And now back to the story. So he, he had to go through Samaria, the scripture says. And he, he came to a town called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. She came to the well alone at noon. See, nobody goes to the well at noon. No women walk to the well by themselves at noon. It's dangerous. Sun's directly overhead and beating down on you. Who, who travels outside of their own town, uh, away from their own well, by over a half a mile at noon to get water? See, women normally came to the well in the morning or the evening. It would be, for the women of the era, something of a social event. That's where women would meet and greet and hang and, and maybe shoot the town gossip a bit about what was going on uh, around Galilee, around Judea, around even Samaria. The well is where you go to be seen. It's where you go if you want to be noticed. It was, see, when I work off-site, and I work off-site to write talks a lot, so, so um, I'm you know, out of the office, there are certain places where I know if I want to concentrate, I, I, I can't go. And one of them is Starbucks in Chester. Because if I go to Starbucks in Chester, I can't, you know, I can't work. And so the well in those days was essentially for women of the day, the Starbucks Chester. You don't go to the well unless you want to be seen. I mean, maybe she had gone to the well before at the right time with all the other women of town at the easier hour, at the dignified hour. Maybe she had taken the short trip just to her hometown well where she was known, where they would know her story. But if you've lived long enough and you have a story, I mean, we all have a story. Once your story gets out, once it's known, and if your story is not the right story, 
well, then the well is not where you want to be. Now, maybe you've felt that, too. Maybe you, you've been out on the street corner and, and, and seen people's glances f from the corner of their eye. You've heard the whispers. You've felt the snickering. Maybe you've uh, avoided the Starbucks in town because you know that maybe you've seen or felt folks in there judging some stupid decision your kid made. Or maybe gossiping about your husband. Or maybe talking about what happened to you at your job. Or maybe even just dissing the way you keep your yard. Heck, if you have, you know. If you've ever been afraid to be in the place where they all know your story, you know why she finds herself outside of town at a well at noon. And the Bible goes on. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? It's interesting, right? Will you give me a drink? He's tired and thirsty, and she has the water he needs, but he has the water she needs. He was thirsty and knew it. She was thirsty, and she didn't know it. The woman didn't come to the well seeking Jesus, but he came to the well seeking her. You see, holy men don't go to Samaria, or do they? Jesus' simple request for a drink of water, it's most likely completely, wholly, radically unexpected. It's not to you and I, but in the story, it would have set the audience aghast. First, that a Jew would even speak to a Samaritan. Second, that a man would speak to a woman in public he didn't know. In fact, as I understand it, Jesus, as a good rabbi, should have been maintained a 20-foot distance from that woman and not spoken to her at any point. And third, that a Jew would even drink from a Samaritan's cup. When the woman saw Jesus, she knew he was a Jew, probably by his dress, maybe by his accent. She knew he was a stranger just passing through. And in the first century, it was unheard of for a man to speak to a woman in, a public, in public under those circumstances. And to ask for a drink of water was even more unusual since the rabbis thought it was a sin to touch any utensil that a Samaritan had touched. She probably lived long enough to know, though, that something was up in this encounter. Maybe some kind of religious trap was being set. This guy, maybe just like all the other uh, elitists, the religious do-gooders, they just wanted to prove their righteousness by some kind of upcoming rebuke. Or maybe, maybe, maybe he was just like all the other guys in town and her reputation had gotten out and he was going to prove his manhood by some kind of tryst behind the well. And so she answers him, with almost a little Jersey girl attitude, she says, Scripture says, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God who is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with. This well is deep. Where can you get this living water? See, it had a dual meaning in that day. She, she thought he was speaking of water that was running like a river. Where can, and he was. Where can you get this living water? I mean, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the dwell and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Can you almost hear her, right? What life has done to her, the hardened walls over her heart, what she's kind of built up. Listen, buddy, what do you want from me? You know why I'm here. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them is not going to thirst Indeed, the water I give them is going to become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, 
still thinking of a different kind of water. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and I don't have to keep coming here to draw this water. What's fascinating is she's asking for something in her ignorance that in reality is all that she really needs. And so now here comes Jesus. He, he outs himself. He says to her, out of nowhere, he says, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've actually had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. What you've just said is actually quite true. And there it is. The dirty laundry revealed. The cat is out of the bag. The horse has left the barn. The truth is out. She's got to be thinking, my rep still holds, even with this guy. You know, I thought he was different for a second. Maybe I thought he might not like be like all the others, but maybe I was wrong. Why did I even ask? Why did I open my mouth? Why did I open my heart? It's interesting, right? Uh, Jesus' instruction to call her husband. You know, it had to make her uncomfortable because she doesn't respond. She doesn't go into any detail about her, her answer. She just says, I, I don't have a husband. Now, it was true, but it wasn't the whole story. She knew she was hiding the truth, but what she doesn't know is that Jesus knows it too, and so he proceeds to reveal the rest of the story because this woman, woman had five husbands, and the man she was living with wasn't her own. In a sense, for her, it was an ultimate reality check. I mean, think about it. How could a woman in that day have five husbands? Today, when you hear of a woman that has five husbands, we tend to raise an eyebrow, right? I mean, did they all die? That's unlikely. Had they been divorced, uh, divorced her five times? Probably not. Was uh, promiscuity involved? Most likely. One writer said this, it's hard not to think of her as the Elizabeth Taylor of her day. The truth is, we're, all we're given is a glimpse into one afternoon in her life, and we don't know how she got there. We are not privy to her trail of breadcrumbs. Now, I don't think, I do think there are some things we can surmise, though. For instance, it was likely her plan in life was not to have five husbands going on six. I don't know any young woman who starts off hoping to marry five times, particularly in the culture of her day, when a man could divorce a wife with little or no reason. Now, I imagine she married the first time when she was 13 or 14. That was the custom. I like to think it was a love match, perhaps a boy who caught her eye one day across the busy market streets. Now, it appears that she has no children. In those days, that would have been perceived as a curse from God. And perhaps that's why her first marriage ended. Her husband would simply tell her, you're free. And what that really meant in those days are, you're homeless. Because he had no obligation to provide for her in any way. And so maybe... In time, you know, she started to believe again. And once more, she hoped that love would be strong enough to withstand the storm. But it wasn't to be. And by the time we meet her, she's got five marriages under her belt. And she's simply grateful to have a roof over her head. I imagine her to be one of the loneliest women alive, weighed down by an overcoat of societal shame. And at first blush, in entering the story like this and reading what Jesus says to her, it can almost seem kind of cruel, right? Jesus, really? You got to call her out like that? But here's the deal. The entire gospel is conveyed in this one little paragraph, in this ordained moment. This is the God 
this is the God, this is the holy man that has to go to Samaria's. Hers, yours, and ours. And so the first thing this woman feels is the weight of her sin. Jesus doesn't say to her, oh, it's okay, it's all right, don't worry about it. Hey, I know everybody today is getting married five or six times, not a big deal. Jesus doesn't tell her it doesn't matter. Jesus, the God who seeks and saves the lost, the God who has to go to the Samaritans, the first thing he does is show her how broken she is. It's like he holds up a mirror to her soul. He doesn't allow her to fake how good she is. Jesus is not afraid of her sin. He is not put off by it one bit, but neither is he afraid to call it out for this nameless one, this one that could be anyone, that could be you or I. And so if you understand the Bible, it starts with this. God has got to go into the Samarias in our world and in our lives, and when he gets there, he is not put off by your sin. He's not shocked by it. He's not surprised by it. But if you will engage him, he will show it to you. And this is what God does. This is what he has to do. He has to show us ourselves in order that we might understand how serious our problem is, how short we actually are, how far away we have fallen, how bad things really are for us. But then at the same time, he shows us something else. When our brokenness, when our neediness, when our selfishness, when our rebelliousness, when it's exposed, when it's taken out of the darkness and into the light, and put, it puts perspective on who I am. I'm not who I was pretending to be. And it shows who he is. We love to hide. I love to hide. I hide behind all kinds of stuff. Reputation. Intelligence, hair, my good looks. This woman hiding at the well was no different than you and I. Our sin causes us to hide. Our brokenness causes us to hide. The thought that we might be judged by others causes us to hide. Who are you hiding from this morning? I know you're all hiding from something. We're all hiding from something or someone because we, we so desperately want to be loved by somebody. I mean, for some of you, it's like, man, if my wife only knew. If my wife only knew what I was involved in right now. Can't let her know. Can't let anybody else know either, because it's going to blow my image. For others of you, it's like you've been, you're the guy at work that goes, if my boss had any idea how I completely have no idea what I'm doing in this job, but I'm just going to keep pretending. Man, if my husband had any idea that I had that second credit card and that he was in debt on a home equity line that he has no idea about. If my mom and dad do what I was doing right now, they would not be happy. See, we're all hiding. We've all got these things that we don't want people to know about us. We all have these things, that, we all have these reflections that we want to show to others that really aren't deep reflections of who we are. They're just what we think people might like and then by love, thereby love us just a little bit. But here's the deal. To be loved is to be truly, fully, and wholly known. And to be wholly, fully known and accepted is to be loved. This is the way it was meant to be. 
in the garden when God created man and women, they walked naked and unashamed. I have nothing to hide from you. You have nothing to hide from me. I am who I am, and you love me anyway. And they walk naked and unashamed, not just before each other, but before their God. God, I am who I am, and I stand before you unashamed. Because to be truly loved is to be fully, wholly, and completely known. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it is superficial. And to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. One other author said, you can only be loved, this is great, you can only be loved to the extent you are fully known. You can only be loved to the extent that you are fully known. Or, put another way that maybe you've thought or heard, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. John Ortberg said he came to this realization that he's never been in this kind of relationship, this fully known relationship. And so he went and he found a very godly guy, a man that he knew that he could kind of expose his soul to in a way that had never been exposed. And this is what he said. He said, I told him everything that I was most ashamed of. Think about that. I told him everything that I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies and my cowardice, how I hurt my wife with my anger. I told him about my history with money and my history with sex. I told him about deceit and regrets. This is a pastor. Pretty famous one. I told him about deceits and regrets that kept me up at night because pastors are supposed to hide. I felt vulnerable because I was afraid that I was going to be outside of the circle to lose connection with him. And much to my surprise, he didn't even look away. And I'll never forget his next words. Johnny said, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. The very truth about me that I thought would drive him away became a bond that drew us closer together. And he went on to speak with me about secrets he had been carrying. I can only be loved to the extent that I am known. If I keep part of my life secret from you, you may tell me you love me. But inside, I think that you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. Anybody know that feeling? I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am known fully by you. To be loved is to be known. To be fully known and fully loved, it's the most healing gift that one human being can give to another. We're so afraid of exposing ourselves because we've been hurt so much and rejected so often. And so this woman responds to Jesus. She says, I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on these mountains, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time's coming when you're going to worship the Father, not on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. He said, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. Look, he goes, we know the salvation is from the Jews, but a time is coming. And it's now come when worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not on this church and not on that mountain. But in spirit and in truth, for those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks because he's spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth, fully known. 
The woman said, I know that there's a Messiah coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And Jesus said, the one that I'm, I, the one that's speaking to you, I'm he. And I just explained it all to you. Because to be loved is to be known. Because holy men don't go to Samaria's. Or do they? And just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to see him talking with a woman. You're supposed to be 20 feet away. You're not supposed to be talking to her. You're not supposed to be seen one another. Jesus, what's this going to do with our rep? What are all the religious people going to say about us? What are they going to think about us? You're not supposed to care about this person. Why are you talking to her? But no one asked. What a bunch of cowards. No one asked. What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, and that water jar has some, as you read it, some sense of her identity. Leaving her water jar, that, that jar that in a sense forced her, to, forced her to be reminded of her shame. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, you've got to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did because he knows me. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. I mean, think about her, think about her invitation. It wasn't theology. She said, he knows me. Think about who she was speaking to. It was all the people back in the town that she couldn't even show up at the well with. And she goes back to them and she says, he knows me. He knows everything I've done. I know you might not believe me, but you got to come. You got to meet him. Because you've never met a man like this. Just come and see. He knows all I ever did. He knows about the men and the guys and the sex and the betrayal and the addictions and the using and the need and the foul ups. He knows it all. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows me. And he loves me. That's the way you talk to your friends about Jesus Christ. He knows me. He doesn't get into the, she doesn't get into theological debates. He knows me. And he loves me. The story ends. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, because of his words of conviction, because of his words of showing them who they are, and his words of acceptance and forgiveness, his words of pointing out to them their brokenness and their sin, his words of not just saying it's okay, his words of saying that must stop, his words of saying this must start, I know who you are, come and follow me, I love you. Forgiveness and love trumped judgment. And many more became Believers. I'm going to close with this little video I have for you. I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation. Say that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by, cast your mental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And otherwise, what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? 
I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears, but that's too much to hope for, to wish for, or pray for. So I don't, not anymore. Now. I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used, and abused, and outcast, a failure, disappointment, a sinner. No drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now. But you don't. You're a man of no distinction, no of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face with all those glances I've been about, and you take the time to really look at me. But don't need to get to know me, for to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And you know me. You actually know me. All of me and everything about me. Every thought inside and hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread. My past and my future, all I am and could be. You tell me everything, you tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me and hear my presence. You say I am he. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you've shown me, who should taste what you gave me, and who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And they all need this. We all do need it for our own.